When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Oh, where have you been, my blue-eyed son? Oh, where have you been, my darling young one? I've stumbled on the side of 12 misty mountains. I've walked and I've crawled on six crooked highways. I've stepped in the middle of seven sad forests. I've been out in front of a dozen dead oceans. I've been 10,000 miles in the mouth of a graveyard. And it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, and it's a hard, it's a hard rains are going to fall. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host at Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining me to talk about one of the greatest Dylan songs of all time, maybe the single greatest Dylan song of all time, A Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall from 1963's The Freewheeling Bob Dylan, is the author of Hard Rain, Bob Dylan, Oral Cultures, and the Meaning of History, Alessandro Portelli. Hello, Alessandro. Hi. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. I really thoroughly enjoyed your book. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, I am really excited to talk about it over the course of this episode. And of course, talking about this song, because this book is dedicated to just this song, basically, and its history, uh, which is kind of an amazing artifact. And the, the idea you'd be able to kind of write a single, you know, the, that a whole book could be written about a single song. But if, if any song in the Dylan canon is worthy of that, it's certainly this one. But before uh, we get to the book and the, the history of the song and stuff, uh, you know, you get into this in your book a little bit, but I want to ask you, like, how did you initially, how did this all start? How did you become a fan of Bob in the first place? Well, if you, if you were 18 uh, in 1960 and 20, 1962, you could hardly avoid becoming a, a fan of, uh, of Bob Dylan. Um, um, in my case, I, uh, I was an, um, a foreign exchange student in a high school in Los Angeles in 1960-61. And um, my, my foster family, as a matter of fact, I lived with a family in um, Westchester, LA. And for Christmas, after I got back home, sent me uh, the Peter, Paul and Mary album, In the Wind, uh, which of course is inspired and includes uh, Blowing in the Wind. And... Um, and, you know, things just got rolling from that point on. Um, and um, basically, I I had become, I, I was just beginning to, be, to become involved in some sort of politics, which I still am. But um, in a way, Dylan sounded like... Um, um, well, like somebody that could accompany you critically in this process. He, he didn't just mouth slogans or anything. He just offered you uh, a range of uh, emotions and metaphors and feelings. Um, so I guess uh, he helped me grow up, basically. Can you... When you when did you first hear a hard rains are going to fall? Did you hear it off of freewheeling? Uh, what was the context? Well, uh, of course, when I first bought um, uh, freewheeling, um, now uh, you know I was living in Italy, and uh, from sixty 
simply went on. And um, at that time, the uh, Dylan, Dylan Records had no, no distribution over here. So that I didn't get the records in order. Um, the first record I, I got was um, uh, The Times Are Changing, mm -hmm. um, because a friend of mine was going to the stage for work and asked him, just get me anything by this guy, Dylan. <laughs> and and uh, he came back with that. And so, uh, and I bought um, had, uh, freewheeling afterwards, and then Bob Dylan, the first time after that. And then from that point on, there was a distribution, and I just could, I was able to follow it. So this must have been around uh, late 60, early, no, late 63, basically. And actually, I, I remember buying it um, on the way back from uh, um, a demonstration uh, in the in the center of Rome, the, uh, there was a march for the homeless in uh, in the center of Rome, and I was recording those. And on the way at the end, at the end of the march, on the way home, I stopped by uh, a record store, and here it was. So uh, I came home that night with some of the greatest recordings I ever made in the field, and of course, my favorite album. That was a, uh, a very memorable day. Was that the day that you relate in the book about where you, you put Dylan on and it was, was it your father who comes barreling in and, and says, oh, turn no, that, turn it, that awful it, thing off. That was before that was before <laughs> you know, when I got the times they were changing on, I put it on the, on the wrong side. And the first thing that came on was um, only a pawn in their game. <laughs> and if you haven't heard Dylan's voice before, I mean, it's tough. And, <laughs> uh, and of course, I had been playing John Baez, Peter, Paul and Mary, and, you know, and I was still living at home. Um, and that was accepted. Um, uh, Dylan's voice just tore through all that. Mm -hmm. and, um, I, I'm really grateful to my father for showing this <laughs> very clearly. You know, this was something, this was something else. No, the, um, I've, um, uh, I put, um, I, I played uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall on the Radio a year later because, um, but basically, I, I was one of the very few people, probably the only person I know of that was collecting American folk records at that time. And I had this uh, friend of a brother of a friend who had a radio program radio show on, you know, the flagship uh, station of, of state radio. Um, and uh, he had never heard that kind of music. So he said, um, why don't you come, come on my show and play one record a week? So the first record I played was uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. And so then, so it, it, it struck you, that particular song struck you right off the right off the bat like you knew that one you, even though you loved everything you were hearing that one was really like wow this is a whole other kind of whole other yeah. level and also um back in uh, i think 56 57 i had bought um uh, harry belafonte's 45 um of lord randall mm -hmm. 
and I immediately recognized the connection there mm. between. Um, so uh, yes, the song struck me because it's because it strikes and it would strike anyone. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and uh, um, but there was this further dimension. I I was becoming involved in all the folk folk revival movement. I was doing field work and. Uh, in my own in my own environment, and um, I had just discovered that there was an Italian folk song. Uh, there was that there was uh, just a parallel to to Lord Randall that it also began. Where have you been, my darling son? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and it was a dialogue between the mother and the son, just like her grain. So I am, in fact, these are two distinct processes. On the one hand, I was uh, obsessed by the popular ballad, by the folk song, because, um, well, you know, you know the, the song is, you know, the, the young man leaves home and goes out hunting and he's, he's poisoned by his true love, quote unquote, and he comes home and his mother asks him to make his will. And he makes, he makes a will, and he leaves um, you know, symbolic gifts to each member of the family, uh, marking their social role and, the, and, um, and their position in, uh, in society and in the family. And what fascinated me was, on the one hand, the question, why, what is the meaning of, uh, of the fact that uh, 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 his true love poisons him. Uh, on the one hand, and that that feeds into the meaning of history, <laughs> uh, phrasing my title. Uh, on the other hand, I begin to compare versions of the song, noting how they, you know, a folk song is a folk song because it keeps changing. It's a, it's a living organism, and so. Uh, when I recorded the Italian version of Lord Randall in a neighborhood here in Rome, a working class neighborhood in Rome, well, the will that he makes was totally different from the will that he makes in northern Italian versions, had nothing to do with the will in North Carolina or Scotland. Mm-hmm. And so you have sort of a um, social history of the family. So I was, uh, on the one hand, absolutely excited about the Dylan song and um, obsessed by the folk song. Incidentally, when I first uh, began to uh, uh, work as an assistant to the assistant to the assistant professor in the English departments in Rome, uh, and uh, we had a, a seminar on 20th century American poetry, and I presented and discussed Harvey's uh, Fall. So I was following it both from the folklore history aspect and from the literary poetic aspect. Well, that, that leads in perfectly to something I wanted to ask you about. It was that I was curious about how this song uh, kind of traveled with you through your life. Obviously, it's one of his earliest songs, so it's it's almost uh, just under sixty years old at this point, and in terms of its composition and its recording, yeah. And so, 
was the when like when he would do live versions of it, and we'll talk about that in a little how many times he's done it live. Like, would you go and sort of particularly try and seek those out to say, oh, you know, how is the song kind of moving forward with me in time through my life? Did, did it change in your mind what it was about again to you? as you went through life as a, you know, you're in the seventies and eighties and the nineties and he's doing I'm, it in different guises. I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually 80. Um, anyway, uh, well, uh, you know, um, one thing the song does, you know, he basically Bob Dylan said, refused the idea that the song was about right. something, you know, uh, which means it's about most everything. Uh, <laughs> My friend Alessandro Carrera, who's a, a great Dylanologist, says it's about the apocalypse, it's about the end of times, which it is, but it's also about history. And one of the things that the song has done is that it has uh, uh, responded to the different forms that the apocalypse has taken in history, like you know the nuclear holocaust in the 60s, but then it, it's, a, it's become the theme song of the environmental movement. Right. In a hard rain, it's, you know, I spent a lot of time in uh, Eastern Kentucky, and uh, hard rain is the acid rain from bituminous mm-hmm. uh, coal. Um, and, um, uh, and then, um, and in fact, this is something that had, that is not in the Italian version. The Italian version came before the English. And this is a chapter I added in the English version because I suddenly realized that the people who've crossed over dead oceans, who've uh, walked uh, across deserts, who stood in the mouths of graveyards, these are the migrants. These are the people who are crossing the border in, uh, um, uh, you know, across the wall or before they build the wall, or that are dying in, by the thousands in the Mediterranean, trying to reach the northern shore of the Mediterranean. And if you, uh, if you listen to the song with those people in mind, I mean, every image resonates. Mm. And, I, and um, after all, you know, when, um, when Dylan finally announced that he was uh, moving away from uh, political engagement, from all, from superficial, from visible political engagement. Yet, in his songs, Chimes of Freedom, mm-hmm. he sings for the refugees on the unarmed road of flight. I mean, here they are. Uh, and that was 64. So, um, what he's doing is um, uh, the song is not change its meaning, but widen, broaden the meaning mm-hmm. uh, as new crises, new apocalypses uh, loomed on the horizon. And, uh, you know, new with new hard rains were going to fall. Mm. I've always been struck with this song is that, I mean, and Dylan himself has talked about um, that he, he thought, as he saw it, the every other ver- every line or every you know couple of lines could be as he said the springboard to another song yeah. because it it's all so open ended it's all this chain of imagery that doesn't seem to really connect up to anything in particular and I think listening to it over again all the bunch of versions uh, that that are that exist of it 
listening to it again recently in, in preparation for this, it's on paper, it could be kind of a downer song because of what it's talking about. But there's something about, to me at least, how he, for this song, purposely leaves out any real interpretation of what he's describing that gives it that lift. Part of it is the vocal performance. And again, we'll talk about that when he recorded it. But part of it is that it's because it is so ill-defined that it leads you to kind of, I mean, a lot of this imagery is pretty nightmarish, but it he doesn't draw any straight conclusions. And so it leaves it up to the listener to kind of decide these things for themselves. And to me, that's what helps keep it from being so down because yeah, obviously it's about nuclear apocalypse, you know, good Lord, but it's, and you know, a lot of people thought it was because it was released after the Cuban missile crisis, even though it was written uh, before and even uh, performed it like hootenannies or whatever before. But to me, that's part of it is that why it seems to work so well across all these years, because it's, it allows the listener to lean in for it forces them to lean in and sort of define for themselves what any of these lines are. Now, when you listen to it, do you have uh, any sense in a concrete way of what is happening or does not, does is that not the case and it doesn't matter your enjoyment of it? Well, it comes and goes. You know, sometimes uh, the images just jump to your mind. I mean, when he talks about a white man who walks a black dog, that's not a white. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's, it's actually happened. Mm. Um, so, um, uh, well, in the end, what he says basically is, you know, just like the folk song, he also makes a will, a final statement. I know my song well before I start sinking. And um, in a way, uh, what it does is um, like the, like the art, uh, the song itself is the artist's message to mankind. And it's a warning. And somehow I keep making the correct the connection with uh, another song, which is not as, but which is very powerful, uh, which is Pete Seeger's um, "If I Had a Hammer," mm -hmm. and, you know, and he says uh, that that, um, that rolled out uh, that it, it talks about a warning, and he also says that. Uh, uh, a way that roared out a warning. So it's a warning. Uh, so the, the rain is going to fall. It hasn't fallen yet. It hasn't fallen yet. And, um, you know, you talk about the um, uh, nuclear crisis. There's a line in uh, Don DeLillo's Underworld when he talks about the nuclear threat. But then he says, well, after all, the bombers didn't leave the hangars. The bombs didn't fall. So uh, the way he puts it in the song, it's going to fall. Mm -hmm. There's no way out. On the other hand, and I've learned this from, uh, from folk music, uh, you never take um, a song out by itself separately. You always uh, read it in the context of... Uh, um, of other songs, like in uh, well, I want, <laughs> there are songs that are exactly you know the mirror image to 
Lord Randall. In this case, I mean, he writes this apocalyptic song in 1962. A year later, uh, the times are changing. Uh, my favorite Dylan song, When the Ship Comes In. So um, uh, I guess the whole point of the book is he stands at the crossroads between catastrophe and hope. Mm -hmm. uh, just as he stands at the crossroads between folk tradition and the postmodern vision, you know, he's, uh, he's not a link in a chain. Uh, I'm quoting myself, but <laughs> he's not a link. He's a link that connects many, many chains. Yeah. So uh, while I think the, the only the only other reason why there are two other reasons why we cannot take uh, hard rain as a I don't receive it as a downer, mm -hmm. which I do, but perhaps it's this is just me to me like a Rolling Stone is <laughs> a sort of downer. But um, number one, except in both cases because of the anger in the voice, mm -hmm. he is not. Uh, he he doesn't uh, he sees it he feels it but he resists he 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 fights it and also uh, because if you think about it uh, a lot of the modernistic uh, literary uh, vision of history I mean. Uh, for, some, for a number of strange reasons, uh, I'm rereading Ulysses. And I just chanced on a famous passage where it says, history is a, is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. Okay, if you take all the great 20th century artists, uh, Yeats, Joyce, um, Faulkner, Pirandello in Italy, uh, Conrad, James, uh, Elliot, they all have this vision of uh, history as a, as a nightmare, history as a tragedy, uh, and most of them are uh, ideologically very conservative, but their readers aren't, because one of the ways we read these books is that. Well, the, the fact that they, that their uh, criticism of uh, of history and of the, of the ways in which the world is shaped is so radical that uh, uh, that uh, that it really invites you to do something about it. You know, even though they say there's nothing we can do about it, yet. The, well, perhaps the sheer beauty in which this uh, doom is announced uh, contradicts it. So, uh, as opposed to a lot of the progressive literature that I may agree with ideologically, but it's usually very weak in terms of uh, always attempting to. Uh, include an element of possibility of hope, mm 
which means that the threat is not as bad mm -hmm. as you know, uh, as we think it is. While uh, you know, Dylan says it's not as bad as you think; or it's worse. <laughs> so, so if you, so you, um, and also, um, and again, I'm quoting my time. <laughs> he's, he's not uh, attempting to. Uh, the task that he takes upon himself is not to tell us how to get out of this situation. It's to tell us you know, uh, what kind of desolation row we're living in. And then it's up to us. It's really up to us. So in this sense, yes, it is open. Yeah. It is open. Now, you mentioned in, in your book, again, I'll mention the title again, Hard Rain, Bob Dylan, Oral Cultures and the Meaning of History. You say in, this, in the book, this is his greatest song. You think this is his greatest song, uh, which, again, that's a, you know, for anyone to kind of pick one song, it's a bold statement because the man's written so many. Uh, what Can you explain that a little? Like, why do you think this one, if, it, you know, it's, it is sort of a fool's errand to say one is the best because everyone feels differently. And it's like we've got him, Bob himself. Who knows what he would say if you ever asked him that question. But why do you think, in your mind, like, again, as you say in the book, this is his, as a, as a song, right, as a, as, a, as a written song, not so much performed, uh, you know, great, greatest performance ever, but as a, as a piece of songwriting, you think this is his greatest work. And why is that? Well, it's hard to tell. Um, as you probably noticed, I say it's, it's uh, I think it's his greatest song, uh, um, other people more, better qualified say no it's number two uh, number one is like a rolling stone and um, uh, I don't question it and I, but I also said that, my, that it's not my favorite song my favorite song is when the, when the ship, when the comes, ship comes in right <laughs> because, it's, because for one thing it gives us hope mm -hmm. uh, but, um, uh, but um, I think it's because to me, it's because of the connection with, uh, with the folk ballad. Mm. It's because um, it really, uh, this is perhaps, you know, too, too autobiographical, but um, it, it connects uh, a number of, uh, it connects, you know, my life work on uh, folklore and folk music and oral history. To, uh, to, the, uh, to the historical time in which I grew up. <laughs> so it's, um, uh, it's this, you know, because on the one hand you have uh, Lord Randall, on the other hand, you have Rambeau, uh, and, uh, and you have uh, French symbolist poetry. You know? So, um, and I, but I think it's the, it's the fact that he stands upon these centuries. Uh, and um, one thing that um, I can't remember what, no, I think it was from Wylands, uh, Willems, it's right. He has this very good book on Dylan. And he talks about how Dylan goes back in the 90s when. Well, when his creative veins seemed to be flagging, what Dylan did was he went back to the folk songs. Right. He went back to the folk songs. He did two 
folk albums, and then he had this prodigious season of creative. And to me, it's like you know the um, there's this Greek Greek myth of the uh, Titan Antheus that uh, imbibed new strength every time he touched the earth. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in a way, this is what um, what it does. So, I mean, uh, I'm um, I'm a great admirer, say, of uh, of Leonard Cohen, and uh, but what Dylan has that Leonard Cohen doesn't have as much is this connection with the centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cohen uh, does it through, you know, through, through the Jewish tradition and so on. But uh, in Dylan, you can feel that um, there are centuries that are speaking through him, <laughs> but, um, and yet he is, is a, very individual, very different voice. Mm-hmm. He's not just a bard. He is, uh, he's, I guess, he's a poet. He's a poet that uh, recognizes the tradition and changes it. Okay. I, can, I guess this, is, this may be it. I can only imagine uh, people's uh, reaction when you know this song comes out and. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the songs, I mean, obviously everyone knows it's a masterpiece of a record, but to have, uh, you know, like the, the, the side one of, of Freewheel in is Blown in the Wind and Go from the North Country, Masters of War, Down the Highway, Bob Dylan Stream, and then this song closes side one, uh, which has got to be one of the greatest sort of, you know, I can only imagine, again, getting to it in 1963 and hearing that and then have to just sort of sit there with it, with the record, just, you know, the needle just, Kind of running over the grooves, and you're like, "What did I just hear?" Because even among the other brilliant songs on that album, just I mean, just that side one alone, "Hard Rain" is like its own separate thing. It feels differently than the rest of them in terms of the the imagery um, and how it, it it really again it seems to kind of just kind of come out of nowhere. And then uh, you know, on side two again, there's more, even more, you know, other great songs. But it, there isn't anything even kind of close to it in its in its in its reach in its attempt, and it feel again no song comes out of nowhere. Bob obviously had this going on in his brain, and it was as you mentioned talking about that it's it, it's a uh, you know a version of Lord Randall, this old folk song and other songs. But the the fact that this thing seems so it seems so confident, and he seems throughout the performance to know exactly what he's trying to put across. Famously, this was recorded in one take for the freewheeling record, which again is amazing. The fact you can just get through such a lyrically dense song and not mess it up is is amazing uh, achievement by itself. But it really does seem to just sort of exist outside of its own time, and it is still, you know, again, sixty years on, unique to his uh, canon. Um, I quoted the opening, the lines, and then they get the second verse is the the you know back with the what did you see in my blue white sign. I saw a newborn baby with wild wolves all around it. I saw a highway of diamonds with nobody on it. I saw a black branch with blood that kept dripping. I saw a room full of men with their hammers a bleeding. I saw a white ladder all covered with water. 
I saw 10,000 talkers whose tongues were all broken. I saw the guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children. And they go, it's a hard, it's a hard. Again, except the, it's all kind of desolate, nightmarish imagery. Uh, but yet, again, it's, it's, there's this sort of kaleidoscope feel to it that I'm seeing little bits and pieces of things as the son is describing what, the, what, what they saw. And again, it does have that, you know, it's, it's scary, but it doesn't feel scary in the performance, the way it's, the way it's again, the way it's, it's put across to him. Now, what made you want to write a whole book about this? Like, what was the inspiration for that? Well, uh, you know, well, um, well two things about um, the free willing. He had also composed uh, Let Me Die in My Footsteps. Right, right. We just so covered that on the show a couple of weeks and, ago, yeah. And, uh, and it was left out. And I think, again, if you take the two sons together, uh, you see how he's standing, um, again, at the crossroads of different ways of, uh, but, uh, and also, you know, there's one uh, image from, from Revelations, as a matter of fact, I think, in Masters of War, where it says, in a pale afternoon, mm-hmm. it's a pale horse and its rider. So, but what, sets uh, her brain apart is that all of the other songs are basically, you know, realistic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even uh, Blowing in the Wind, Masters of War. Here, he just steps out of that uh, that approach and all of the the images that you just read uh, (laughs) They have no immediate uh, uh, real life equivalent. Right. They're just, uh, it's a nightmare, dream symbol, but we're moving on to another uh, dimension of uh, another kind of vision. I think this is what, this is what it does. Uh, now, the point is, uh, why did I decide to write a whole book about it? Basically, I was forced. Um, <laughs> Well, what happened was, you know, uh, and I, as I mentioned in the book, I sort of drifted not completely away from Dylan, but you know, um, not as uh, deeply involved as I used to be in the 60s. Um, and uh, so I never thought I would uh, write anything about him. But what happened was when he got the Nobel Prize, uh, my publisher, uh, with whom I had published my Bruce Springsteen book, mm-hmm. uh, he, uh, he he knew I had been interested, in it, so he asked me to give a talk on uh, on Dylan and, uh, and the Nobel Prize, and so I just went back to my old uh, musings on the connection between Hardrain and Lord Randall, and I gave that talk, and he says you had to write a book, <laughs> and. And I said, forget it. I mean, how can I fill a book with just this? So uh, what happens, and this, this goes back to the, <laughs> to the reading of the song. Um, uh, I was uh, asked, and I did it, to edit um, an Italian edition of the uh, selected novels of Toni Morrison, the other love of my life and uh, <laughs> and uh, and the day uh, it, it was really 
tough, but I did it. And the day I finally uh, sent the file off to the publishers, I sat down and I started to write this book. It was just like, uh, you know, after, uh, after a race, you sort of uh, <laughs> uh, loosen up your muscles or something. And, and I suddenly realized that there is one word that Dylan injects in the song that is in none of the original versions, uh, of the folk versions. Um, my blue-eyed song. Right, right. In none of the folk song versions is the song blue-eyed. And the reason I realized that this word was important because I had just finished writing uh, an introduction, revising the translation, writing the footnotes to the bluest eye. And I suddenly realized what, a, what the blue eye means. Incidentally, um, when Jimmy Cliff covers How Dreams Are Gonna Fall, he says, my brown-eyed song. Mm. And when the staple singers cover uh, How Dreams Are Gonna Fall, they say, my wandering song. Because, because black people do not have blue eyes. Mm. So that the song is about, it's not about white people, but it's about the two things. On the one hand, the entitlement uh, and the expectations that come from having blue-eyed, blue eyes from being, from being, an, you know, from being white, like, like me, like us. <laughs> you know? So uh, if you're white, you think you have some rights. If you're white, you're right. If you're brown, so um, um, and you go out into the world expecting, and here this is here's where you know Bob Dylan, the other song, Bob Dylan's dream, is so important. He says we we thought our one road would never we would all travel together on one road that would never shatter or split. Four tracks later, the roads are six and they're all crooked. <laughs> uh, you have expectations, and and then you go out, and uh, and this is a great is a great theme in American literature, the theme of the young man of the initiation of the innocent young man, and blue eyes are classically a, a, a symbol of innocence, innocence in in the, he knows no evil, he goes out into the world and he discovers evil just like the young man in Lord Randall goes out into the wilderness and discover you know, treason. Uh, so, uh, so this is what both songs are about. And, and then I, I realized that it also resonated with another project that I worked on, which was an oral history of the student movement of, well, of the mass demonstrations that were placed in uh, Genoa in 2001 on the G8, around the G8 meeting. And there was a police riot and they were beaten up and the young man was killed. And I had interviews with some of my students who were there. And I said, I went to Genoa and I was wearing flowers in my hair <laughs> and they beat me up. These, uh, these blue eyed. Um, and of course I noticed that the all the photographs of the migrants 
uh, from Africa or from Mexico, stranded in our case on the Italian shores, they all have brown eyes. So uh, in this sense, uh, part of the reason why I finally ended up writing this book was on the one hand, because, uh, because I wanted to sort of relax after Tony Morrison. <laughs> but then Tony Morrison led me back to it. And uh, so this, this is another crucial theme in the song. Uh, the, uh, the expectations that we have and, um, and the uh, frightening encounter and I, I, and of course, you know, you, uh, you think of um, you know Emerson's transparent eyeball, and uh, but what to me is one of the greatest opening paragraphs in American literature, which is um, um, which is uh, the Scarlet Letter, where he says, you know, the founders of whatever utopia. Um, the, no matter what what dream uh, of human happiness I'm coming from, them, they had in mind. Yet they always had to set apart part of the virgin ground for a cemetery and part of the virgin ground for a jail, which means you know death and evil are also are always going to be with us. Mm. And then, and then I realized, of course, that the graveyard is where hard rain begins, and the jail is where it ends. The home in the valley turns, it's a So it's really, uh, I mean, we don't want to uh, overdo the, the interpretation and everything, but in many ways, it's also a song about, uh, the limits of utopia, hmm. and I don't know, but I mean, uh, not only Hawthorne was talking about America, so it's who knows? Maybe it's also thought about the American dream, hmm. and uh, uh, because blue-eyed son, of course, is uh, intrinsically American. Yeah, that's interesting. I I've heard other versions, and I noticed that the you know I like the Wandering Sun, and, and I, it never really occurred to me that uh, other singers were appropriating it for their own culture uh, by changing out the blue eyes. And that makes a lot. Yeah, I've never even thought of it, but that makes uh, you know makes complete sense. Uh, in the third verse, where he sings about, I th- I heard the sound of a thunder and roared out a warning. I heard the roar of a wave that could drown the whole world. Uh, I heard 100 drummers whose hands were ablaze and heard 10,000 whispering and nobody listening. I heard one person starve. I heard many people laugh. And I heard the song of a poet who died in the gutter. I heard the sound of a clown who cried in the alley. And it's hard. It's hard. I always found that line about the, the sound, the song of a poet who died in the gutter as not about himself, but probably about some of his friends at the very least people that were artists who are were struggling to survive and maybe hadn't survived at that point. Uh, I feel I always feel like that one. See, anytime he's mentioning a poet, you know, he talk about himself. And as as he said in interviews, this song started out as a poem. Uh, obviously, he learned he learned very quickly 
you know, the, poet, a poem was not how he wanted to convey it. You know, if you, if you look at the whole verse, the whole verse is about silence. And it's about whispering and nobody listening. Right. The clown uh, died, uh, cried in the alley, you know, and the poet that died in the gutter. Uh, uh, part of the tragedy is that, uh, you know, those who pick up the warning, those who hear the warning, uh, are they? They speak, but nobody listens. And you know, it's again we may again overdo it and go back to Cassandra and the, <laughs> the unheard prophet. But because um, uh, some of, uh, part of uh, one of the yes, one of the thing uh, the things that have in which the song has grown in my hearing is that I that I begin to realize that the the apocalypse is not just out in the world. Right. It's in our souls. You know, and in a way, it's already happened in that sense. You know? um, we've already we've already stopped listening to each other. Uh, and the and the other theme is innocence, you know, the, um, a child beside a dead pony with the wild wolves around it. You know, it's innocence, uh, listening, and being heard. You know, so it's really about uh, alienation, solitude, um, and uh, you know, you know, you're right about the uh, the second side of uh, free willing it, um, what, like one of uh, Dylan's weakest songs very political Oxford Town <laughs> it's, it's a, but here's one of the most fantastic lines in uh, talking World War Three blues when he says I'll let you be in my dream if I can like be in yours yeah that is so powerful because it, it connects. And again, it's a, of course, it's a post-apocalypse world. And the apocalypse is uh, you know, loneliness, solitude, isolation. I'm constantly amazed that, that he will have lines in his songs, and there's some here, that obviously uh, he cannot be referring to this particular thing because this particular thing did not exist when he's referring to it. But when I hear, when I re- hear the line about uh, a roar of a wave that could drown the whole world and then, 10,000 whispering and nobody listening. I mean, to me, it's like, I, that's social media nowadays. You know, I mean, that's what that is. He, it's this. It. he, said, he, says, he says that. Uh, on the other hand, a wave that could drown the whole world. It's happening. Mm-hmm. From North Pole is melting. It's happening. <laughs> and uh, Amitav Ghosh writes about it. Uh, it's a great book. Um, and um, but also, or it has had guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children. Mm. Again, innocence. Sierra Leone, the civil war in Sierra Leone, mm. where 12 year olds were uh, uh, using machetes to cut off people's limbs. Mm. Children, yeah? it's happening. So uh, maybe this. Uh, 
this is one of the things that make it so powerful because it's not about the children in Sierra Leone, which hadn't happened. It's not about my students in Genoa, which was 40 years later, but it says, it tells you why this could happen. It, it tells you the kind, uh, the kind of uh, uh, field of forces that 10 years later made it happen. So, uh, and I think this is, uh, I mean, I'm absolutely persuaded that if, if we accept that the Nobel Prize means anything, which it may or may not, but if we do, I mean, I believe that he deserves it on the strength of this song. <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, and I think, of course, uh, Patti Smith made the right choice. Right, yeah. Of all the songs to be performed at that ceremony, they they performed this. She chose to perform this. Uh, I I do wonder if Bob had any input on that at all. We'll never know, probably. No, no. Uh, but uh, I, you know, yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable. Again, this is the song that he that they chose to chose to perform. Um, they, I always found it again interesting the the final verse, um, which is almost double the length of all the other verses, yeah. and that the imagery keeps piling up. And I walk to the depths of the deepest dark forest, where the people are many and their hands are all empty, where the pellets of poison are flooding their waters, where their home in the valley meets the damp, dirty prison, where the executioner's face is always well hidden. Uh, we're hungry. If you look at the pictures of the police uh, attacking the students in Genoa, that's exactly it. The, mm-hmm. the thousand drummers with their hands ablazing, and their faces will hit them. It's exactly that image. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. <laughs> um, and then he says, "We're hunger is ugly. We're holes, souls are forgot. We're black is the color, and none is the number." And then I love the the switch up as we get to the end of the song and I'll tell it and think it and speak it and breathe it and reflect from the mountain. So all souls can see it. And again, I love the, the, the you know, they were all of a sudden we're listening to someone talking to their child and this child is reciting this imagery. And then we're back to the narrator who is now take, now taking center stage uh, and I'll tell it and think it and speak it and breathe it. And reflect it from the mountains, all souls can see it. And then I'll stand on the ocean until they start sinking. But I'll know my song well before I start singing. And it, to me, it's it's that those last couple of lines again that give this song kind of an uplift that you wouldn't imagine from all the imagery you've seen to this point. Because it's it's the utter confidence of the singer. In this case, Bob Dylan, the twenty-two year old Bob Dylan, twenty-two, twenty-two. Your old Bob Dylan uh, having the confidence to say this kind of thing, but but I'll know my song well before I start singing, which is something that uh, I mean. St- right now, we're living through this whole idea of people who just say stuff. You know, they have no idea what they're talking about, but they just blurt it out, and you know, leaving the world to kind of deal with it. But I I always found that to be like in in so many ways, almost like his mission statement. Not that Bob Dylan really has one. But if he did, like, I'll know my song well before I start singing. I mean, it's like, I've thought about this. I've ruminated. And here's what I have to say. But I'm not a dilettante about this. This is this is a hard-won wisdom. Again, at 22, 
But nevertheless, it's, as you mentioned, it's all the history up until that point that he has internalized. Now he's putting out, and again, as you mentioned in the subtitle of your book, oral cultures, doing it in the oral tradition of listen to what I have. This isn't just a poem I'm writing down and you're going to read it. You're going to listen to me sing it. There are a couple, there are a number of things. Number one, uh, it suddenly, you know, we've been talking about the hard rain hasn't fallen yet, but the oceans are already dead and the palace of poisons are already flooding our waters. So it's already happened. And uh, from the vantage point of 2022, yes, it's already happened. Um, but um, incidentally, he says, um, uh, you know, I'll I reflect from the mud. Again, here's what you have in the background. Of course, you have a spiritual, go tell it on the mountain. Right. You know? And it's the announcement. However, he knows his song well before he starts sinking, but he will also start sinking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's nothing in the song that says that it will not sink. So, um, on the other hand, if, uh, if the song is, uh, you know, is the equivalent to Lord Randall's will, you know, he must die in order to make a will. And the basic difference between this song and Lord Randall is that after the hero dies in Lord Randall, his family and society go on. After the hero dies, well, we have no guarantee uh, you know, that the world will go on in this song. It will go on in other songs. In uh, times that are changing, in, uh, in um, when the ship comes in, not specifically in this song. And the other very cryptic line that uh, fascinates me is the home in the valley meets the damp, dirty prison. What does it mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, does it mean you know that the home in the valley is not far from the crypt, or that the home in the valley evolves into the that dirty prison, or that the home in the valley is already a, a prison? Right, it's become the damp, dirty prison. Yeah. yeah. So um, that is a that again is a very powerful law, very yeah. powerful because it's cryptic because um, it really leads you to ask. What was my home like? <laughs> um, now, this this song, uh, you know, as anyone would expect, uh, you know, has been, you know, a staple of his career. Performance-wise, it's been performed 457 times. It's not, you know, for a lot of other artists, that's a lot. But when you're talking about 60 years of performances, it's really not that many. It was last performed uh, actually in 2017. So it's been getting... Yeah, that was five years ago, but that's uh, in in Dylan terms. That's a recent uh, that's a recent vintage. Now, when it was it was done in the early '60s and then put away for basically the late '60s and then brought back in the early '70s. And then when it got brought out for the Rolling Thunder review, uh, it became like a rave up, uh, up tempo, and which is you, know, you would not think this is the kind of song that would work in that context. But again, there's versions of it you can hear on various bootleg series. What do you think of, uh, what have you thought of some of these versions that you've heard that are drastically different from how you initially interpreted it? I mean, does it work for you as a, 
as like a rock and roll rave up. I mean, good Lord, on, on one version on the bootleg series, there's like a guitar solo in the middle of it, which feels strange for a song like this, but yet they're, they're rocking out on it. Well, so, you know, some, uh, well, I like some of these versions. I haven't heard them all. Um, and it's really not the direction in which I've been working, but right. I, of course I heard a lot of them. Some I like, and I've seen uh, Rolling Thunder review, of course. And I had a hard time rec- recognizing the song in the hard review. And um, um, some of those versions are powerful. Others are, you have a feeling that, well, you know, one of the, one of the things that I've worked on uh, in my, as a as a professor of literature, has been the relationship between sound and writing in American literature, and uh, and let's remember, phonography is the writing of sound, so uh, literally. So Dylan again is at this crossroads between something which is very clearly written. I mean, we also have. Uh, written uh, type, type scripts of the of the song that claim to be the original, and it's also set in, uh, immutably forever in the record. On the other hand, uh, and this is a theme in American literature, the fact that something is written once and for all, well, it it's deadly. <laughs> you know? uh, it doesn't move anymore. So uh, throughout American literature, you have uh, authors, William Faulkner is a case, but is probably the, the one that does it most uh, consciously, uh, which they try to tell the reader, look, this is not really a text. This is a performance. Right. This is happening, you know, or I mean, Whitman famously, whoever touches this touches a man, this is no book. It is a book. <laughs> but so so Dylan is in that tradition. Uh, the fact that he uh, refuses to, uh, to accept the fact that once you record the song, that's the shape of that song. In order to keep it alive, you have to keep changing it. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the reasons why uh, and also, I mean, as he changes, uh, he can't repeat himself. Uh, he, he can't sing. Uh, he's no longer the Bob Dylan of 1962. He can't sing that song the way he did in 1962. You know? So there, there are two reasons. Number one, the fact that performing a song is a relationship with a text. And you need to change, uh, and because you change, you know it's memory. Uh, because you change, then uh, then you, the song needs to change with you. And on the other hand, because if you keep repeating the the way in which it's recorded, then uh, then it's not alive. So right, yeah. At some points, I had a, <laughs> I had this feeling, and I said this in the book that he was actually killing the song to keep it alive. <laughs> he played the song. He made it unrecognizable. He made it in order to, in order to, 
So we keep it like one thing he is he never changes one line from the text, which is which he does very often. Yeah, for for a song seemingly so open uh, to doing that, he's kept it. It's he sings the law. He sings them the way he sung them in 1963. Yeah, this one uh, that I know of, uh, he does. the most outlandish things with the music, but uh, not with the text, not with the story. Yeah. Uh, w- before we wrap up here, there were a couple other versions that I wanted to mention because it 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 underscores what you just said about having to 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 keep it alive, to to let it uh, change over time. Uh, he performed this as at the Great Music Experience in 1994, mm-hmm. which was only three. He only did three songs, and this was one of them where he was backed by a 90-piece orchestra, uh, which seems, you know, Bob Dylan performing with an orchestra seems almost antithetical to how he goes about it because, you know, he's not big on fixed arrangements and following the arrangements. He sort of takes the lead and the the band follows behind, but obviously you can't do that if it's part of a, a symphony orchestra. And yet the song, he did the song there, uh, and again, and, and works within its own context. There's another version that I... I don't even remember how I got this version. It's just in my iTunes collection of Bob Dylan songs where he re-recorded it, a studio version. He re-recorded it for the Expo Zaragoza 2008 World's Fair, which was in 2000, June 8, 2008, which was, uh, and it was highlighting the theme of water and sustainable development. And he sings a kind of, again, up-tempo version of it. And at the end of the song, he himself comes in with a little vocal track uh, where he says he's proud to be part for this song to be, and he's proud to be part of the mission to make water safe and clean for every human being living in this world. And you you can count on one hand, maybe even like two fingers, the amount of songs he's ever performed where he himself kind of drops in on it and has like a kind of commentary over it. And so it's very unique. Uh, and yeah. I, I thought it was instructed that this is the song that he chose to do a new studio version and, and kind of donate to this cause. And in fact, the song became the theme song for the Copenhagen Environment International. Oh, meeting. did it really? Oh, wow! Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Of course, it was a fa- the meeting itself was a failure, but the song was a, was there. So, you know, one one thing about um, uh, Dylan that always fascinated me is how well he take Bruce Springsteen uh, a Bruce Springsteen concert is a ceremony of community yeah. of togetherness any Bob Dylan uh, cer- uh, concert is a ceremony of rejection <laughs> what? What why are you here? What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a great title for one of his live albums. <laughs> Ceremony of Rejection. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, much as I love Bruce Springsteen, and I, uh, and I, I haven't missed any of his concerts in, uh, when he came to this country, and, uh, and in the U.S. too, uh, when I could. But there's a sense of uh, challenging me in Dylan's attitude that, uh, okay, uh, you need, 
you need a ceremony to feel good about yourself and about your world. And, you know, Springsteen is that, is with all the critical uh, protests and everything in it, but we're together. But you also need ceremonies to remind you that the world is, uh, is gone awry. Mm. And, uh, and I think, um, ultimately, you know, uh, in terms of uh, the power of poetry and the power of memory, a ceremony that doesn't make you feel good uh, is uh, probably more productive in the long run. Mm. I got to say this again, this is like a, just a a sidetrack, but uh, when I was getting into Bob for the first time and I was gobbling up all of his records and I really didn't have a context for them, like when they were released, what order, because this was pre-internet. So I couldn't really look this stuff up. And I remember getting the 1976 live album, Hard Rain, which the only time they've even, you know, in Dylan's career has a live album or any subsequent album been sort of named after a song in his catalog. But I was so confused that there is no version of A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall on that record. <laughs> and I think it was Columbia Records being a little cheeky because it was those concerts and when they were recorded that rain started falling on the band and there was some technical yeah. problems and somebody yeah. even got like a minorly electrocuted because of all the equipment there. But I remember just getting the record and flipping it over and looking at the songs and going, wait a minute, why is Hard Hard Rain's not on the record? I I learned, you know, soon after, well, that's Bob. That's kind of what it is. Um, And of course... Someone somewhere has an article about uh, Dylan's fascination with floods. Yes, right, yes. Down in the flood and crash on the levee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, beginning beginning with Bessie Smith, you know, with... uh, uh, there's a song about the 1927 flood. So maybe maybe that's what he had in mind. There. Maybe <laughs> if you keep on if it keeps on raining, the levee's going to break. Now yeah. it was it was this song that when Allen Ginsberg heard it, said he wept because he he knew in that moment that the torch had been passed from one generation to another, uh, which again is a you know a remarkable quote to have about Bob Dylan and about this song um, in in particular. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's been covered extensively uh, by, you know, lots of different artists and it's, you know, it's to use, to use a, a term that I think Bob himself might appreciate because we know Bob loves to work in metal, loves to do iron work. This song, one of, this is one of the songs to me that feels like it's the, the basic structure to which his entire legend is built upon. Everyone knows Blown in the Wind. Everyone knows the times they are changing, like a Rolling Stone, like you mentioned. But then there were songs like this that maybe the average person doesn't know. Dylan fans certainly know. Songwriters certainly know. Music critics certainly know. But it's, it's, this is, to me, this is like a steel girder in the giant edifice that is the sort of Bob Dylan career because the song is so amazing. And it appeared on Greatest Hits Volume 2, even though it was never a hit, it was never a single, of course, it's too long. Bobby, there's even a, a, a quote from that where uh, Pete Singer at some hootenanny said, all the folk singers, you get three songs because everybody's got 10 minutes and that's it. And Bob was like, well, what do I do if I have one song that's 10 minutes? Which was <laughs> <laughs> this song. But I mean, the fact that it appears on Greatest Hits Volume 2, even though this was not, a, again, a hit in any way, says, you know, Dylan himself recognized, okay, this is, this is a big, important song. And I'm going to put it on Great Hits Volume Two, even though you know it doesn't match that sort of that sort of misnomer. So, 
Um, it's as we're kind of wrapping up here, I do want to ask you a little bit more again about the, the book. Did you discover anything new about the song by writing the book? Did you ever, did something occur to you in, in all your research and, on, and in just in the writing of it that you were like, oh, I never, all to the, until I was putting it all down, this thing had never occurred to me? Well, basically, the two, two things I've already mentioned. One, the blue eyes. Yeah? And, uh, um, and the other, and the blue eye happened at the beginning of writing a book because I had Toni Morrison. And the connection with the migrants, which happened after the book was already written and published mm -hmm. in, in Italian. So, uh, so it happened afterwards. And that happened not by listening to the song, but by, it was a photograph I saw of these African people on the boulders of the sea by the French-Italian border. I could see their eyes. Mm. They were all brown. And then I realized that they had come across crooked highways. And, you know, and, and, and they were being surrounded by white men walking black dogs. You know. mm. so, yes, these were the two things. And basically, uh, I guess the uh, comparison with the folk ballad uh, help, you know, help me understand the folk ballad better, mm. you know. And uh, in, in the book, I, you know, the book is out in a. It's not a music series; it's a it's an oral history series. So, which is why you know the meaning of history. Uh, it made me realize that um, ultimately, why does the does the lover, the true love, kill the young man? Because for, for the poor people who have kept the song alive for five centuries, and it's still being sung somewhere, mm -hmm. history was not the, the road to freedom that a lot of us tried. It was fraught with catastrophes, invasions, taxes, uh, the uh, privatization, appropriation of land, wars, conscription, bombardments, all these things. And the fact that they, uh, that um, well, the, uh, the blue-eyed boy's final message is, I'll help you see the state your world in, is in before it. The final message of the folk song is, history is a nightmare. However, we will not give up the future. So, so in a way, the vision of history is even more articulate in the folk song, but I had never thought of it in those terms until I started listening to it again along uh, along with uh, with heart rain. Well, that's that's marvelous. That's a, that's really marvelous. Like I said, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, I found it you know fascinating, and again, you had insights to things that I'd never really appreciated before. And it's a great read, and so I absolutely implore anybody, anyone listening to this, is a big Bob Dylan fan. That's why you're listening. So I would say go pick up Hard Rain, Bob Dylan, Oral Cultures, and the Meaning of History by Alessandro Portelli. You will uh, thoroughly enjoy it. Um, 
Alessandro, thank you so much for doing this. I feel like we could talk, you know, another hour on hard rain. I mean, again, you wrote 150 plus pages on it and four and an hour long podcast is not enough, but, but, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Now, before we wrap up, I do have to ask you the standard exit question that I ask all of my guests. And I think I, I, Probably know the answer to it already based on what you've already written, but what you've written, but I'll ask it anyway. If there is any album, any album sessions of Bob's that you could sit in on, just you could go back in time and be a fly on the wall. Uh, what album would you want to sit in on? I'm imagining it's going to be this because you would get to see this song performed Probably. as you heard it. But what, what album would that be? I don't know. You know, you, my Bob Dylan imprinting was uh, the times are changing. So perhaps in terms of uh, affection, uh, I have, uh, I would probably, uh, I'd probably pick that, not because it's better or more important, partly because I don't know it as well as I know freewheeling. And, uh, You'd get to hear when the ship comes in recorded. That, that would be big for you. And, and you know what he says? He, he makes a comment. He says, you know, uh, back in, uh, in, in the old days, there, Goliath was a powerful man, but he was slain. Today, we have even more Goliaths, but mm-hmm. they will also be slain. Mm-hmm. And I think this is... Uh, this this is uh, a message that I that I try to carry with me. Absolutely. Well, that's great. Um, again, thank you so much for doing this. I really enjoyed the book. It was great getting to talk to you uh, about this song. And again, thank you so much. Now, of course, everybody, if you want to find back episodes of Pod Dylan, just go to our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And we have to uh, thank our Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash FW podcast. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, George Doherty, Joaquin Meckel, Paul Ruther, and Henry Bernstein. Really appreciate the, the uh, support. So uh, again, Alessandro, thank you so much. Everybody pick up the book, Hard Rain, Bob Dylan, Oral Cultures, and the Meaning of History. And we will see you later. Bye. When I got back from India and got to the West Coast, there's a poet, Charlie Plymel, at a party in Bolinas, played me a record of this new young folk singer. And I heard Hard hard Rain, I think, and wept. Because it seemed that the uh, torch had been passed to another generation.